0: At about six pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. The carbon fiber wrapped stainless steel barrel makes it durable and lightweight. The rifle comes equipped with the Savage AccuFit technology, so that means it's adjustable and it comes in a variety of calibers the 308, the 270, the 28 Nozzler, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 30 6. And much more. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit SavageArms.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles Podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles Podcast. Man, we got a kick-ass episode today, and it's not necessarily because today's guest killed a 200-inch buck this year in Illinois. Uh, It's because he is a wildlife artist, and the reason I reached out to him in the first place is because he's a wildlife artist, and I'll be completely honest with you, he is really good at what he does. Um, I think some of his artwork is the best outdoor wildlife-type painting and artwork in the business and um, and uh, that's really what we talk about today we touch base on his his uh, 2020 buck it's 200 inches it's giant we do like a real high level uh, conversation about it but a majority of today's episode is about his artwork how we got started um, you know, we talk about how his parents and, and maybe some teachers help nurture that talent along the way. Why he loves hunting and fishing, why he loves uh, painting—all these kind, all these uh, conversations that revolve around wildlife art—and it's a really cool conversation. It's something that we don't typically do throughout the enti- you know throughout the the year is, is talk about the you know we have this huge outdoor community. We have this huge industry and when, when i say industry we think a lot about products you know bows arrows broadheads camo tree stands that kind of stuff but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into that as well and one of those is art right uh ryan kirby's his name and he does um he's had a couple Oh, magazine! I should say a couple. He's had more than a couple magazine covers of his artwork. I think most notably Outdoor Life. He's had a a couple Outdoor Life episodes and uh, not episodes, I should say, uh, magazine covers. But it's a really good episode. So today we got to do a commercial, and that commercial is Wasp Broadheads. Now, here's what I'm going to say about Wasp Broadheads. Wasp Wasp Broadheads are badass that's I mean that is a cool way of saying that they're very destructive and the the reason I I say I use the word destructive is because this year I shot my buck from the ground he was quartering away I hit front side shoulder I hit lung I hit trachea I hit uh, jugular right and it was a blood trail that a blind man could have followed that's how good it was It was a, I'm not going to say it was a perfect shot because it wasn't. It uh, had, there was some, you know, it was marginal at best, not necessarily terrible because I did hit lung and I got the jugular and I got the the trachea and my deer expired really, really fast. And whenever I go out and I try to kill a deer or any type of animal with with a, a bow and arrow, My goal is for that deer to expire as fast as possible. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a double lung shot or it has to be a heart shot. It has to be a shot, in my opinion, that kills the animal as fast as possible. And that's where, in my opinion, the ethics comes in to play, right? The goal is to have that animal expire as quickly as possible so it does not suffer. Now, that doesn't happen every time. Uh, and and how does this relate to uh, wasp, right? I looked on my wall today and I have, uh, including my buck this year, I have seven, well, eight total mounts. Every single one of those deer have been killed. I'm going to say except one. Every single one of those deer except one have been killed with a wasp broadhead. Whether that has been a Boss 4-blade or a jackhammer. Majority of them have been with a jackhammer. That's their mechanical. It is just something that I feel confident having on the tip of my arrow. The material that is used to make them is badass. They function like a, you know, it's the design, the function, the material. And all that adds up into a, a seek and destroy product that that I feel confident having on the tip of my arrow leaves great blood trails. You know, if you shoot anything really uh, in the right spot, it's going to leave a good blood trail. But uh, it's it's the solid build allowed my arrow to go through that front shoulder and get to the lung and get to the parts that are going to make that deer expire really fast. And uh, man, that's why I love shooting a wasp broadhead. And uh, if you want to find out more information about wasp, And their full lineup of mechanical and fixed broadheads, visit wasparchery.com. And I know I have a discount code somewhere here. Let me pull that up for you real quick. Where are we at? Where are we at? I probably lost it. This is is bad business right here. They call that dead air. Here it is. All right, Wasp, you want to get 20% off your orders. Enter the discount code nine fingers 2020 and that's the number nine followed by the word fingers 2020 no spaces and uh, you'll get 20% off your purchase man and I'll tell you right now they are some of the best built best constructed broadheads on the market now let's get into today's 200 inch deer wildlife artwork episode with Ryan Kirby in three two one Alright, on the show with me today, uh, someone that I find really interesting, because not because he kills giant bucks, but because he's an artist, and uh, today's guest is Ryan Kirby. Ryan, how you doing, man?
1: Good, man. It's good to be here. Appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, i I can't help but just ask you right off the gate, do you still have a smile on your face from the buck that you killed this year?
1: Yeah, I've been uh, been telling buddies that I just carry his rack his rack around like those guys you see at trade shows. My, you know, my wife hates it when I bring that thing into bed and tuck it in bed between us
0: and you know, him good night. He's got a
1: couple kickers that are really uncomfortable.
0: You'd, um, I'll be honest with you, man. I would probably sleep on a couch for a year if I could <laughs> if I could sleep with that rack. You know what I mean? If that yeah. was the buck I ended up killing.
1: Yeah, and um, I, I actually I, I had taken off about two weeks to be up there, um, and I moved my whole office up to my parents' place, so I had my, you know, 27-inch IMAX sitting in their living room, full of antiques and everything. <laughs> and it was just pretty ironic, but uh, I killed him on, I guess, the third day I was there, the evening, and so you know, I had a week and a half to still jack around and work and hunt with buddies and shot another doe for the freezer so i had enough time for the smile to wear off and now i'm back to working and grinding and being a dad of little kids and all that stuff so i feel
0: how many kids you got back
1: to the reality i've got a four year old boy named Rhett and a one year old girl named brooklyn oh boy so uh we're in it man
0: yeah i feel you man my uh my kids i i, I went I went to South Dakota for a week. Come back, I can yeah. I feel like I can tell they changed. I went to Michigan for oh, 5 man. days. You come back and you can it looks like they changed. And then yep. November uh, comes and I, you know, I head south for however many days for me to kill my Iowa buck and I come back and I feel like they changed. Now, you ask my wife, she's going to give you a different point of view, but it's yeah, crazy yeah. how fast these kids grow these days, man.
1: Oh man. It's nuts. Um, I honestly, Brooklyn's about to walk any day now, and uh, I, I honestly thought I was going to miss her first steps because every day she's standing up and she's grabbing things and doing this. And it's like, wow, they really do change quick.
0: That's a fact, man. All right, so, so real quick, I want to I, I want to touch on this buck that you that you killed this year because it is a magnum of magnums, and yeah, and but I, I also want to say we're not going to I'm not going to get the whole story out of you today what i want to do is i want to tell all of the listeners if you want to hear the full story on this giant buck that you killed go check out the latest land and legacy uh podcast on the sportsman's nation network there is a it's a the full recap did you do a full recap of the property the hunt all that stuff with them yep yep all right cool so that's where you're going to find the full uh uh, the full story, but the abbreviated story real quick, what I want to know is, is this a buck that had been on your radar for a handful of years before he, before you ended up shooting him?
1: No. Um, I, I grew up on a, our family farm in Hancock County. Uh, we've got 150 acres now. And, uh, that's in Illinois, right? Been, that's in Illinois. Okay. Yep, sorry. Um, So and it's always been pretty good, you know, but it hasn't really been great. Um, It's a pretty good section. We've had a few, you know, good bucks killed over the years, but not routine booners or anything like that. Um, I bought uh, another 40 by myself, and then I bought a 40 with a buddy of mine, and that's where Matt Adam had come in helping me manage those and get on a plan and everything. Um, but I was, I had buddies coming in. Uh, we had South winds, which were kind of funky. It was 70 degrees all week. It was an awful warm front. And so I was kind of bouncing around and to answer your question, we, we had this buck move in from November to March the year before, and he held his antlers till mid March. He held them late. Wow. And he was a big deer, um, Roundabout story, I've got his shed and his right side scored, I think, 78 inches, somewhere around there. Um, I think he was probably a 170s, and I honestly think he was he was four last year, four and a half. But um, it, before that, we didn't have any history with him. He just showed up in November, hung around for a while. We didn't see him after that. We didn't have any trail cam picks of him in the fall. Um, a couple neighbors – between a half mile and a mile away, had pictures of him that fall, but we had no idea he was there, but, um, he, he completely blew up. I bet he put on at least 30 inches over the year and, uh, we didn't have any trail cam pics of him that fall. So I wasn't even hunting that deer. I didn't even know he was there. I mean, we assumed he was around, Yeah. but I didn't know what he was. No. So he was a complete surprise.
0: So he was there, he disappeared for a year and then he came back this year
1: well he was he was in that section so my um from where i killed him my cousin is about a mile to the southeast he had pictures of him and then a neighbor to the west got pictures of him two nights before i killed him and some guys that hunt to the south he was he was kind of running this big drainage we're right along the mississippi river he was running this big drain but we didn't have any pictures of him as far north as where I killed him. Okay. So we had several cameras out. He just didn't, you know, there was a camera a hundred yards from where he was at the night I shot him. Uh, but he was, he wouldn't have walked by that one. So he just somehow avoided the cameras. Yeah.
0: Well, But. was he chasing a doe when he finally came in or was he solo?
1: No, it was, it was really warm and I, I was really busy at work. So I was just kind of punting the morning hunts and I was going to, I'd, I'd drive around the section in the morning, you know, check fields and all that kind of stuff, and then go to work, and then work for five, six hours, and then I would go hunt in the evenings. And that, that night I got in there, I'd only been seeing movement real late, like past half hour, 45 minutes of daylight. And I got into this stand. It's kind of a big teardrop-shaped field, and the stand's in the south part of that teardrop. And there were does on the other side of the field um they had come out early some does and fawns and i was just sitting there and i heard a a deep long grunt about 75 yards away to the south in the main block of timber and it was just a and i knew it was a buck um had no idea what it was couldn't see it so i ended up trying to call him a little bit i rattled once for a little bit got no response but really i was just trying to make him think that there was some action up in that bean field. He was kind of down in a ravine behind me because I knew that he could go one of three ways when he decided to come out into a field at dark, and I wanted him to come to my field. So I was just trying to, you know, create a scenario in his head. And again, I'm assuming it's the same buck. It could be a completely different deer. I don't know. But I heard him grunt about 20 minutes later in the same spot and then heard him grunt about right right at prime time in the same spot and he hadn't moved and when he did it the last time i had been grunting a little bit and i just decided to give him a a snort wheeze kind of a hail mary right before last light to see what happened and then i wasn't going to jack with him anymore and i didn't get an immediate response but a few minutes after i snort wheezed i the woods had gotten really really just dead calm and i heard a buck heard a deer coming up over the ridge it was walking like a buck, you know, on a mission. I looked, um, could tell it was a buck, but, um, the, the area we're in is covered in bush honeysuckle and you've probably got a bunch of that in Iowa. Yep. I'm assuming you guys have, yep. have that. And you know how it is when it gets thick, man, you, those deer can walk right through it. You can't really even hardly see them. Um, so at 40 yards, I got binoculars on his rack and I could tell he had a big frame. He had big beams and some, some gnarly stuff. Um, and from there, I just put my binoculars down and 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 focused on the shot. He ended up coming in through that bush honeysuckle. He had to clear a shagbark hickory tree at like ten yards, and I was uh, by the time he came around that tree, I was already anchored, trying to ignore his rack and just pick a spot. And I ended up shooting him at ten yards. Jeez. And he immediately turned and ran wheeled I knew he was big but even then he got back in that honeysuckle and I, I couldn't quite tell what he was um ran probably 30 40 yards and then I heard him crash and then I slipped down got my arrow went around and got my dad uh who had hunted uh, the other side of the farm that night and we went back in and got him, man and we we couldn't believe it when we walked up on him <laughs> I mean, it was it, it was it, it, we I'm still kind of speechless even just thinking about it but Um, when we first started tracking him, um, we didn't find blood immediately. And I'm, I knew he had only run 30 or 40 yards, but still, I just wanted to start on blood and get on the right path. We didn't find any blood immediately. And finally I was like, dad, let's just look right here. And he was piled up within 30 yards where I shot him, man. So
0: I, I tell you what, man, it's crazy. I mean, in that, in that short, brief thing, we could break down so many different things because Yeah, I rattled in a two hundred and ten inch buck that I shot and didn't recover. I shot him high, Mm -hmm. hit hit, uh, I hit his spine, but not his spinal cord, and uh, I hit lung, and he he ended up surviving in the next year. The neighbor killed him, but anyway, it's funny when people talk about calling whitetails; they think they automatically think for an instant response, like when you rattle. Yeah just like when a two-year-old or a three-year-old runs in and they are all crazy and they're looking for it, that doesn't always happen. Like it can be a delayed response, whether you're grunting or, you yep. know, th- that, 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 that interest that that buck has on what just happened could, you know, Hey, I'm going to finish this scrape. I'm going to munch on some stuff. Then I'm going to come over and investigate. And yep. uh, it's crazy. I, I feel like correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's kind of what happened in your case.
1: Yeah, and I, I haven't had great success just blind calling. Yeah. I just, I, you know, I, I, I've done okay with it, but not great. I've done very well when I can see the deer and yeah. I can see how they react. I've Absolutely. called in, you know, a couple of deer, nice deer that I've shot um, doing that. And so I'm not a huge fan of, of blind calling a lot. Um, with, with this buck, though, one thing I did fail to mention is uh, when he was grunting back there i looked down and i did see a doe step out and start drinking out of the creek for a little bit and i think he might have you know been nudging her around checking her to see if she was in heat you know um i don't really know what was all going on back there but again my whole strategy from the very first was i'm gonna just try to make him think that it's going on up here and eventually he's going to come to this bean field instead of going to the cornfield to the south right um and and one thing that I can tell for a fact is it, it was getting right at last light when I shot and there, you know, there's a buffer. The stand's probably 20, 30 yards off the edge of the bean field. And there's kind of a thick buffer there between the edge of the field and, and the stand. And this deer was not going to be on that plot in daylight or the, the field in daylight. He was just coming up to the edge and i'm sure that if i sat there and watched him he would not have gone into that field before daylight so i think he just wanted to come out and you know all that being said i even if he wanted to come immediately to my calling and that's assuming it was the same deer he was not going to come up there until right at dark
0: yeah that's crazy that's uh that's yeah congratulations man
1: yeah, but um, he, he ended up scoring 202 and 5.8, um, which is by far my biggest deer, yeah. and he, his math is amazing. Um, he's got, uh, like, and to show you the jump, um, I did an Instagram story on it earlier. My buddy found the shed from last year. He's got some real distinctive points, so we know it's the deer from last year, but if you looked at it, you'd say there's no way that's one year growth. He went on his right side, he went from just over 18 inches of mass to over 26 inches of mass. So he, he put on about 16 inches of mass in one year, man. um, It's nuts. He,
0: he ate good. <laughs> he did. That's crazy, man. Well, well, and
1: my, my buddy Joseph was saying, I never thought about this, but he kept his antlers really late too. I mean, yeah. he, he had his I think my dad told me March 23rd, he still had antlers. Yeah. So you think about that? He grew that rack in, you
0: know, that amount of time. Two months
1: less than most deer are growing a rack. Yeah, you know, I mean, he he was on roids, man. Yeah, he was eating something good.
0: I tell you what, I've I've had some trail cam pictures in the past of bucks still holding their antlers in late March, early April, and other yeah. deer in the same picture with their little nubs. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah growing so it's amazing what some of these deer uh can do in that amount of time yeah so he probably not only did he have the genetics it looked like but he also had the uh um the nutrition to hit his peak growth you know what i mean so
1: yep yeah for sure
0: Well, um, congratulations on the big buck and, uh, um, I bet you that kind of gets a guy excited, not only for this year, right? You just, you just harvested one of your, you know, one of your best deer ever. And I mean, are you thinking about next year already?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I've, uh, you know, I've owned, um, a small piece, a small 40 acre piece, uh, for three years now, two and a half years. And then we just bought this second one, and I'd I'd love to have more um if we can swing it. But I look forward to working more to to prep than anything. You know, I mean that's that's the thrill for me. Like trying to set a property up and and getting deer to do exactly what you want them to. That's the thrill for me. So I as soon as I killed that deer, I even uh texted Matt and Adam, and I said, Hey, man, is it too too early to or too late to spray bush honeysuckle? <laughs> you know, like can I? What can I do to get ready for next year already? Um, During the rut. That's the thrill for me, man. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, during the rut. I'm that guy. Yeah. The neighbors are looking at me walking around with a backpack sprayer like,
0: who is this idiot? (laughs) He is ruining everything right now. (laughs) 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 Well, um, that's awesome. Like I said, everybody needs to go check out the latest Land and Legacy podcast where they talk about this this, uh, the land management that you do, the, the history of this deer, the the whole hunt and your strategy and all that stuff. But the reason I reached out to you, and I'm not sure if I did it before or after you shot this big buck, but I'm interested in you as the artist. And yeah. a, a lot of people really don't know this. I mean, because I, I very rarely talk about it, but I'm a huge fan of art and I don't just mean Art as hey, there's a Larry Zach hanging on the wall. Let's look at this buck making a scrape. But really, all types, yeah. all types of art, whether it's uh, you know uh, abstract, impressionist, or you know realistic, or or whatever it is, I just I love looking at art. And um, so, my question, I just kind of want to go all the way back and ask you ask yeah. you some questions about your youth. And I mean, did you grow up in a hunting family? Where did you grow up at? Uh, or is it something that kind of came on later in your life?
1: Yeah. Well, I I'm impressed that you like art, man. I didn't, I didn't know that about you. I do listen to podcasts a lot. So you're like an onion, you know? <laughs> a lot of layers. you're a Renaissance man. There you go. Um, but man, I, I grew up, um, my dad was a farmer. We farmed corn, soybeans and some wheat, a little bit of livestock my mom was the postmaster in our hometown and I just grew up in a real small town, man. Uh, we had 49 people and 49 kids in my graduating class. And you know, your classic stoplight, in the Dairy Queen, Midwest small town. And, um, you know, it, 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 it came pretty natural to me. You know, it's a God given gift. Um, I had a great art teacher in high school that taught me a lot of fundamentals, um, You know about drawing perspective and all that but it really just it 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 came pretty natural to me i didn't uh i didn't grow up in a in an art family you know my dad wasn't an artist and nobody really taught me to draw uh i just picked it up on my own and like i said i had some really good teachers but really we hunted and fished all the time you know i was obsessed with fishing when i was a kid and I, i as i got into hunting um, my dad and I learned to bow hunt and my brother at the same time because bow hunting wasn't real popular you know in the in the early 90s uh it just it re- we we just gun hunted all the time we did deer drives and all that kind of stuff with right. you know smoothbore shotguns and Ithaca 12 gauges and stuff like that and you know I the the outdoors was a huge part of my life from early on and I just I feel like it's the best way to grow up I'm so fortunate that that I was able to grow up like that. We had 120 acres out the back door, you know, we could fish or hunt just about whenever we wanted to. And so I, I had, um, you know, a, a gift and then a passion and they just eventually merged. Uh, I I, won the junior duck stamp contest when I was in high school and that kind of put me on the map with, um, you know, a lot of local people and, and, and I got to make some good connections with, with, professional wildlife artist and I would bale hay and paint people's bird dogs for a summer job that's (laughs) kind of what I did so like to guess I'm a little bit of a renaissance man like you a little bit but um
0: let me ask you a question uh, before we get any further or further because let's not kid ourselves when my son or my daughter bring home a picture from art class and we say, oh, my God, that is beautiful. You're such a good artist. And we put it on the fridge. <laughs> yeah. And in about a week, we throw it in the trash, right? I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's nothing that's going to stand out. But was there a time where someone in your family like you or like your mom and dad or an aunt and uncle or maybe even a teacher that kind of helped incubate that skill? Because there's, there's times where, you know, a, a child can do something really good or, and then yeah. it, they, they, they nurture that talent a little bit. Right. And, and then they yep. focus on it. Right. Other th- and then, yep. and then there's other times where, like I just said, it's, Oh, cool. You're great. You know, I, you know, but I'm not going to put any, I'm not going to start paying for art classes for my kid. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a great question. And and that's where I was really fortunate to have uh, just great parents Um, and, and like I said, a really great art teacher, um, you know, I guess there's a certain, there's a lot that can be learned as an artist. Um, and there's some things that are just a little bit more innate. And I've always been able to understand how things worked, how shapes and shadows and perspective work that really came natural to me. And then after that, you know, artists pretty much just hand eye coordination, just making the right marks in the right places. And, I, I, I was able to do that as well as a, at a young age. And this is a funny story I tell people all the time, but, you know, like I said, I went to a real small high school, and there wasn't a whole lot of money for art supplies or anything. So they would actually pick, my art teacher would pick three students that got the full set of Prismacolor colored pencils, and then the next tier of talent got less, and then the next year of talent got less. And that's just how it was, man. Because yeah. you know the school couldn't afford a lot of stuff. I mean, those are the types of things that would be—you'd have a lawsuit on your hands yeah. right now. You know, yeah. that's like total discrimination and stuff. But the, my art teacher really um, identified that in me and other students, and 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 really set us aside and and helped nurture that. Yeah. And uh, and put in some extra time outside of class and, and helped us you know, after hours, if we wanted to and, and try to get us some extra resources. Yeah. At the same time, my parents did the same thing. My first oil painting was my grandma and grandpa's black lab. And my parents took me to Fort Madison, Iowa, and we bought a little like paint kit. I, I mean, I literally it was a black lab. So I think I had black, white and red because he had a red collar. Yeah. And and that was the first painting I ever did. So, um, how old and, and were that's you? That's pretty significant. Um, man, I want to say I was like 12. Okay. I need to see if I can find a picture of that and send it to you. Um, but we didn't, they're just, you know, growing up in a small town, there aren't a whole lot of resources available to you Yep. and there, there wasn't YouTube then, you know, so I, I really, uh, relied on those people to teach me the fundamentals and, and, uh, you know, help, help me springboard, um, yeah. to the next level.
0: So at some, um, at some point though, right? Like, the the grasshopper it turns into the teacher and all of a sudden there is a level that your teachers or your parents can no longer help you right because yeah. you have yeah. surpassed anything that they can provide you did, yeah was there a time like that where you ended up searching out for you know for more or more advice different yeah. people or did you just say okay it's on me now
1: Um, a little of both. Um, when I was, uh, let's
0: see, junior
1: in high school is one, I won the national duck stamp contest. And it's a funny story there too. I was, you know, all this art stuff is going on, but I'm just like an average, you know, country high school kid, you know, like I just want to deer hunt. I want to play sports. I want to do this and do that. Um, the deadline for the duck stamp entry was coming up. And I decided that I wanted to uh, paint my first, uh, my, my, my next entry. And I never painted a full painting before. I'd always done colored pencil drawings. It actually broke my wrist at a, at a basketball game. And I was in a cast for five weeks. And I got the cast off on Friday. And the submission had to be done by like the next Tuesday. So I basically locked myself in my room the whole time for over a weekend and painted that entry. Um, and it ended up going on to win. And that, so that was a little bit more of a time where I put it on myself, like, Hey man, you got to step up and get this done no matter what, like no excuses. Yeah. Um, at the, at the same time, I was getting a few lessons, um, from some people locally, but again, it's a small town. So look, there's not a lot a whole lot of resources, um, that, that you can really tap into. Where I really found that was I I ended up going to college and getting a a degree in graphic design and multimedia, and then I took a job at the National Wild Turkey Federation in South Carolina. That was in about 15, 16 years ago in 2004, 2005, and I actually answered a a classified ad in the back of Turkey Call Magazine back in the day that they were looking for a designer and an illustrator, and I moved down there. And you know a lot of people are. You've been to Turkey Federation banquets and Ducks Unlimited banquets and stuff like that. What those programs do is they take submissions from artists all over the country, and then they select the you know five to ten paintings that they think that they can sell well at their banquets to raise money. And they sign a, a, an agreement with that artist, and they just pay them royalties for those uh, prints to make prints of their work. But every one of those is hand signed and numbered by the artist. And so what the Turkey Federation was doing is they were um, they, they'd have the artist come in to headquarters and sign prints for like two or three days. They just sign prints the whole time. And what I would do is go chum it up with those guys, and they're all really cool, really friendly. And I would just ask for advice, and you know, I'd even bring my work in. So I'm, you know, twenty, two, three, four, at the time, and I would paint nights and weekends, you know, and then work my full time job. And I would come in and ask those guys for advice, ask them to critique my work, tell me what I can do better. And and when I started to tap into those guys, that that was like the next level of talent that, um. That, that that helped me to get even further you okay. know i mean there's there's only so much critique my you know my high school art teacher can do but you put that in front of a, a guy that's painted professionally for 30 years um they they can really help you and really rip it up i told him hey man like if i want to compliment i'll show this to my mom like i want you right. to tell me right what i did wrong in <laughs> this and, and tell me how can i i can improve
0: yeah so, so. just from a from a process or like i'm looking at some of the pictures on your website and yeah my question to you is do you paint off of a picture or do you paint out of your mind or how, how do you how do you know what to paint how do you know like the positions that these animals are going to be in and all that stuff yeah
1: that's a that's a great question that's when i get a lot um it usually happens one of two ways Uh, there's a lot of times I I, I almost always work from photographs from photographs, whether that is a, um, a a freelance wildlife photographer that I work with and get their reference photo from them. And most of the time I I pay for that stuff. I either get it from them and paint the the animal. So that's where like a pose inspires something. Like if you see scrape line, which is a white tail buck making a scrape. That's one of those where the pose inspired the painting. A lot of times when I do a turkey scene, though, I, I'll be walking around, walking around the woods, moving th- between a setup, and you'll see a scene that, that, and you've seen it before in the woods, you're like, God, that's just like a painting, you know? Or I can just see a big buck right over there with the sun glimmering off his rack. That happens too. And I always have a camera with me, or even an iPhone these days can take a good enough pic, and I'll, I'll take... Uh, photos when I'm on a hunt and bring those back to my studio and then I'll look for reference photography or um you know poses to put the animal in that scene versus painting the pose but as I've gotten older you know one of the things that I've always done is I've only painted animals that I've hunted before myself because you know animals take bad photos just like people do you know, you'll see, a, you'll see a buck in a scrape, and it's, it's a photo. It came from reality, but the foot positioning is off or it just doesn't quite look right, and a, a diehard hunter can tell that. And you've got to know what to look for there. And so I take, I take liberty with photographs all the time. You know, if, there's, if, if the pose just isn't quite natural um, and I know it's not quite right, I'll fix that myself or move a leg here or there. Um, a lot of the times the backgrounds I'll, I'll make them up as I go. And that just really comes with experience, you know, experience in the woods. And you just have a gut feeling that this isn't quite natural. I'm going to paint it this way because this is how I know it feels when I'm in the woods.
0: Yeah. So, so, so a little bit of both. So you, you get inspired by these pictures and then you, that's kind of like the foundation. And then you just go from there. to to the finished product okay it's
1: it it almost never happens when i just make up a scene totally on the fly yeah um there are a lot of times where i have a scene in my head or something i want to convey and i've got to find reference for it or what happens a lot of times is i'll do kind of a frankenstein image of you know take the head of one deer and the the body of another and the back leg from another deer and working together and then bring all that um, together in my studio.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, I'm looking through your, your uh, white-tailed deer original oil paintings called – the one that stands out the most is Autumn Reflections. And yeah. most most outdoor or wildlife, um, especially for deer, the <laughs> they paint a picture or do their artwork – almost all the same like the body language is of a deer at full attention ears forward looking at whatever right or yeah. Yeah. i just even those that i see at uh there's one f- for some reason that sticks out it's called like late night mapling and it's uh, a buck in a doe she's got her head down and he's got his head up looking at the camera and it's just like this average position and yeah yeah what stands out to me in this autumn reflections episode is the front doe, and her position of her leg up, her nose in the air, the air that one ear forward, one ear back, and she's just like it's like she's scent checking where she's gonna go. And the cool thing about that is is I can relate to that because I saw deer do that this yeah this fall, and so it's just it's just like my God, that's. That is a pose of what a like. That's a detailed pose of what a white-tailed doe would do before she decides to head up the ridge and go to a cornfield. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, and that's um, you know, a lot of that stems from the fact that that I see those things the same as you, yeah. and 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 that's that's why I've, I just kind of set that rule for myself a long time ago that I wouldn't paint anything that I've never hunted before because yeah. you really do. I just want things to be authentic and, 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 and resonate with people. Um, And, you know, my, my experiences outdoors just naturally translate into, into my art.
0: Yeah. So, so what would you call your style of uh, painting? Because I can look at it and I look, it's, it's not like the, the shadowing is detailed right? It, it looks like a buck, but it's not like picture detailed. Like some paintings are right. It's, 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 uh, it's not, I don't know. It's not detailed, but the, the complete image is detailed. If that makes sense. Yeah. What, what's that? Is there a process or something like that called? No, I've never really thought about that. And
1: honestly, nobody's ever asked me that. Um, But I've always just wanted to, uh, you know, when I got my start, I was doing duck stamps yeah. and those things are massively detailed. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the story I always tell people is there were years ago um, they, they do the judging of the federal contest in Washington, D.C. And I was there for the judging of it when, when I was in high school because I won the duck stamp contest and they gave me and my whole family an all expense paid trip to D.C. And I got to meet some of the judges and, and talk to them and there was one story a long time ago where they were in a tiebreaker, and they couldn't figure out who was going to be the winner, so they started counting feathers. And one of the guys had painted one of the wings of the ducks with one extra primary wing feather, and so they disqualified him. And so that, that's the kind of – they didn't disqualify him, but they named the other guy the winner. Gotcha. Um, and that's the level of detail that some of those duck stamps got into. and And that's how I – that's always what I thought the goal was to make it as realistic as possible. But I started, um, I got to become buddies with a guy named Bruce Miller from Minnesota. And he's a, he's a phenomenal artist, great guy. Um, And I just really admired his style. And one of the things that I always, that I always uh, looked at these, these older guys is they would start out detailed. A lot of them would get their success in the duck stamp program. And they would start out really detailed in their work, and then as they got older, they would loosen up. You know, they would start to um, they would start to leave out some details that weren't vital to the to the the, the painting. You know, yeah. um, you you can get uh, the the details and the posture just right on a buck, and you can let some of those background details fade,
0: yeah. and it
1: actually enhances the piece to me instead of takes away from it. And I started, I kind of looked at it as a metaphor for life to go deep real quick. You know, as you get older, you tend to focus on the details that matter and then you let the other crap go. Right. And I I felt like a lot of these guys, as I was watching them mature in their careers, they were doing that with their work. And I started to think, man, I wonder if I could get a head start on that and paint that way and learn some of the things that these guys have learned over 30 years of painting, if I can condense that and try to go there a little bit earlier myself. Yeah. And I'm just like anybody, man, I'm my own worst critic and I'm a long ways there, but I have pushed and I feel like that helped me a lot to get better, um, to, to try to to get there a little bit quicker, you know, to right. experiment with some, some looser brushwork uh, to enjoy it a little bit more. Um, and to not always feel like I have to have to hammer out every feather, every detail, everything exact, you know. Yeah.
0: And, and I'll tell you what, like, I'm not I, I guess I'm not a connoisseur. Like, I, I don't follow a ton of wildlife artists. But yeah, I'm sure if I mean, Larry Zack, that's who I like. That was the first outdoor artist I really became familiar with because he was on magazine covers. He lived in Iowa, you know, he was at the, oh, uh, yeah. he's, he's always at the Iowa trade shows. He's got some really popular pieces um, yep. that have, you know, graced the cover of, you know, the uh, Iowa outdoors magazines and stuff like that. And you can look at yep. his, you can look at his artwork and say, that's a Larry Zach. Right. Yep. And, exactly. and I think, I think like you're well on your way to, people looking at your artwork and going dude that's uh that's a ryan kirby you know what i mean like yeah. that yeah. it's that noticeable
1: i hope so man and larry i've never met larry but i remember um when i was in like middle school i can't even remember where we were at we were at a deer classic or something and i saw a bunch of note cards with the old rivals series oh, yeah. john deere and case man i thought that was the coolest thing ever yep and uh i ended up buying some of those and and watching guys like him, Al Agnew's another one that has a lot of bass pro stuff. Um, he has a ton of Bass pro covers, you know, the fish jumping out of the water and and all that. And, you know, back when I was a little kid, they still did quite a few painted outdoor life covers and field and stream and stuff because photography just wasn't quite where it it, it is now. And, uh, I just remember looking at those like, man, I want to, I want to be a wildlife artist one day, yeah. you know, and then, then I, I, you know, went to college and got a degree in graphic design and went a little bit more realistic route. I ended up doing, and I still do a lot of uh, marketing and branding work for companies in the outdoor industry, but it's, it's weird to sit back and think that I'm 38 years old right now and I'm a wildlife artist, Yeah, you know, and it's just like, wasn't the path I thought I would take to get there, but I'm here. So. Right. Right, just cool to look back on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about. I mean, because you do the, you do the artwork, right? Which yeah. it, it, which some people would call a painting, but you also do these other things. I, I don't know what you call them, but it's like, it's like a graph, not a graph, but a. Here is all the variety of, of ducks in this flyway or the Atlantic flyway, and it, then it has a list of all of the ducks. What what do you call those?
1: Well, those those were just a series of paper prints. I started working with a company that does licensing, and we were at a a, a big home decor show in High Point, North Carolina. And we were walking around, and and uh, I, I was getting the tour of their company and the products they make and all this kind of stuff. And I remember seeing it was a it was a chart of I think it was butterflies, like the butterflies of North America or whatever. And I got to thinking. I was like, man, it'd be super cool to do the, the, the waterfowl of North America in a similar feel. Um, and it's a really, and I ended up designing it in a, a really vintage, um, you know, almost a monotone, monochromatic sepia tone, kind of a vintage look. And I did the whole series of, of waterfowl. And I mean, man, I, I broke it up. I tried to do about three a day. And, and even then, there's like 90 sketches on that thing, you know, so it yeah. took a long time. Right before we got to press, I was like, man, I had a a, a guy that was working for me at the time um, in like a marketing role. And I was like, man, I, I think we could, I think we could do a deer, like a, a, a deer aging chart, like a print type deal. And so I really thought the waterfowl was going to be the popular one, but we did the uh, growth maturity of the whitetail buck, and I worked with uh, with Kip Adams and yep. Matt Ross yep. from uh, QDMA. God, those guys know their stuff, man. They're amazing, and they really um, they really helped me with a lot of facts and figures. Um, I sketched out all the deer, all the parts, you know, and 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 we designed it in a way that's just kind of a cool, timeless piece for the the deer hunter, and that one has taken off. That's been the most popular thing I've ever done. We're already on our third reprint of it. And it's been a really, really great piece. But, um, you know, to answer your question, it was just, uh, we wanted to create a, a, a different type of product, a different type of print for the die hard hunter. Yeah. And as an artist, I've always felt like um, my goal is to bring the outdoors indoors. So yeah. to take, things that we're passionate about and the things that we love and bring those into the home in a way that inspires and and, you know creates a culture around hunt camp and your home decor and I just started to think over the past couple years like that doesn't necessarily have to be a painting you know that doesn't have to be an original oil painting over the mantle or a print that's double matted and framed under glass like that can be anything you know that could be any number of things, and I feel like the the series that we just wrapped up has been a really kind of an eye opening thing for me about how it, it's been really well received and people really appreciate a different look.
0: Right. So. And what's cool about that, and for some reason I don't know why this it reminds me of this, but um, so there was a, I think his name's Autobahn. I think I if um, yeah back in the day this James dude Audubon. yeah. So yeah, he ends up going to. Out West, right? And he he sketches all these different birds, I believe, or animals. And then he brings it back and he shares this with all the people in, you know, the East Coast of the the United States that had never been out West before. And for some reason, those those charts or whatever you call them these prints the growth and maturity of a whitetail buck look like a scientific document that they hand people who are doing research you know it's like here's this this is what this is all about and it's just like all these statistics and facts and and a a person who has never seen a whitetail deer could actually look at it and learn something from it yeah so yeah
1: and and the cool thing too is with art is you know, I've seen some of these, these aging charts, and, and that's the big thing now with, with QDM and, and, and everything, that the direction we've gone with deer hunting is aging deer and taking a mature animal. And I've seen them out there, but the hard thing about doing them with photos, which is the ones that I've seen, is you can never get an apples-to-apples comparison of the same deer in the same pose. And the beauty of what you can do with art is I can sketch the 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 deer in the same pose. And so, you know, his tarsal gland shows apples to apples, one through six, you know, the back and the belly and the rack and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And that that was one of the really cool things that we were able to pull off with that piece is, is to really, really get into, you know, what the – what a four and a halfer looks like, yeah. you know, and obviously oh, they all change animal to animal, but, but for the most part, we're not trying to take a photo and pull it off as a four and a half halfer. but this is really what they look like. And this is how they act and this is how they behave. And there's some cool, um, you know, behavioral things that, that the guys at QDMA helped me a lot with. Um, the rut activity, uh, things like that that I didn't know, you know, and I I felt like I'd researched it pretty thoroughly. So yeah. those guys are real sharp.
0: All right, so what is the hardest animal to to paint?
1: Ooh, um, man, turkey's gonna be a grind because you, there's you know with with hide and hair, you can really get away with abstracting that or painting that with pretty broad brush brush strokes right but there's no way to do that with a turkey man you just got to dive in and paint pretty much every feather um and the tail fan you know that's tough with the barring so i paint quite a few turkeys and i really enjoy them um i'm really passionate about turkey hunting and so i feel like that shines through in my work but uh they're tough to paint man they're a grind yeah But one of the things, you know, you were talking about Audubon. One of my favorite artists is Carl Rungus. And they used to do the same thing with him before photography that, you know, museums would send him to Alberta to, you know, kill a moose and paint it. And one of the hardest things as an artist is to be able to put a foot on the ground of an animal. So it's easy to float them in grass, you know, but when you have to put that foot on the ground and show weight, and show that that's a that's a hard thing to do, man. Yeah. so deer legs can be pretty tough.
0: yeah. Uh, what's your favorite to paint?
1: I really like elk. Um, you know they they lend themselves to really cool scenery, really cool um, uh, a, a lot of times what you have to do when you paint a painting is I have to take a micro scene. So I can't paint a huge panoramic vista. Otherwise, the elk would be the size of a quarter in it, you know. Right. So you have to pick a smaller scene that tells a bigger story. And I found that elk lend themselves to some really cool poses. Um, their anatomy is awesome. They're big. They live in big country. A lot of unique stuff there. So I, I
0: think elk are probably the most fun. Right. Um, now, you've been on the cover of Outdoor Life how many times now? uh six six so is this something that they commission you to do or do or do you paint a picture and then you send it to them and then you go hey well hey I got this if you want to use it you can use it
1: no it was man that's a that's a a big project I was actually at SHOT Show at a cocktail hour actually and I, I ran into Andrew McKean who was the editor at the time and we were just kind of BSing about hunting and this and that and the other and he asked me what I did, and I told him I was an artist, and and I had done some illustration for the, for Air for Field and Stream and Outdoor Life a few times, and I started showing him some of my artwork, my paintings. I had them on an iPad, <clears throat> and he said, "Man, it's it's really funny timing. We were just talking about bringing art back to the cover. as kind of a retro deal." So we, you know, swapped contact info and followed up later. And the way, that, the way that those work is they have the the theme of the issue baked before we ever start talking about it. And we'll go back and forth on uh, like a pose. They may tell me, here's what we're looking for. It's the rut issue. We want a whitetail. We want these poses. And then I'll pitch them on six or seven different poses. And we'll kind of go back and forth, you know, outline a few things. And they will actually know what the cover looks like before I ever paint it. So I'll mock it up with photography before I ever paint anything. And uh, by the time I I set my canvas on the easel, they're already writing cut lines and getting the thing baked. And then I just execute the painting, take a good digital high-res photo of it, and then tweak it, and then send them the digital
0: file in New York. Wow. That's so, pretty awesome, man
1: it's pretty wild man it's a pretty cool collaborative process and those those guys are really sharp yeah so
0: well their designers are very good just to just to not only you know it's it's one thing for somebody to be on the cover let's let's just say a magazine approaches me and say, hey Dan we would like to do we would like to do uh, a story about you would you want to be on our cover issue okay cool whatever another another article yeah. of another person but there's something about Having your artwork on the front, it just seems like it's a whole different different level of i don't know an accomplishment if that makes sense
1: yeah it's, it's an honor for sure um and it's cool you just the one thing that I've always felt about working with them is as a team together, we want to make a cool product like it's not about me getting a piece of art on the cover. it's like me working with them to create a cool cover you know something that that entertains people and they uh they really want to look at it. so yeah. i think we should pitch them on a painting of you on the cover <laughs> <laughs> we uh,
0: and it would just be an actual picture of yukon cornelius <laughs>
1: <laughs> i don't do titanic style though so don't ask man no I mean,
0: do you know who Yukon do you know who, camo and everything do you know who yukon cornelius is <laughs> no he is everybody says i look like this cart this character from the christ like the christmas cartoon where rudolph has to go out into the wilderness like into this blizzard and (laughs) and find his friends and he he meets this fat red bearded stocking cap dude's got two pistols (laughs) so when you get the opportunity google yukon cornelius and everybody everybody says i look like that dude (laughs) that's awesome so, all right, um, we're going to wind it down here. So if anybody wants to check out your artwork or, you know, I don't know, I guess before we, we do that, do you take requests? I mean, if someone if someone goes, hey, man, I want you to paint this picture for me. Will you do that?
1: Yeah, no, not right, now. not right now. I haven't done requests and you call them commissions in the art yeah. world. I just I haven't done it for about a year. Um, I actually just wrapped up uh, Carson Wentz's dogs. Um, he's, he's a, he's a diehard hunter, the quarterback for the Eagles. Yep. Um, I wrapped up his dogs and I really just haven't taken them on in a year because I'm so busy as is. Um, so the answer is no, but I get asked a lot, man.
0: A lot of trucking. If that money's right though, right? If that money's right, I, I take it you'll do just about anything.
1: Eh, Maybe.
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> there you go. All right. So if any but, if anybody wants to find out more information about your painting or take a look at your galleries, where should we send them?
1: Uh, RyanKirbyArt.com is my website. And then most of my good stuff is on Instagram at Ryan KirbyArt. Um, I'm just parceled to
0: Instagram. Sounds good. So. Sounds good. Well, hey, man, congratulations on the giant buck. And uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to hop on and chat with us. Hey, man, I
1: appreciate it. I've listened for a long time, so it's good to be good to be on with you and kind of meet you through the podcast.
0: And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout-out to Ryan for taking time out of his day to hop on and, and BS with us a little bit. Huge shout-out to all of the partners of the Nine Finger Chronicles, the Average Conservationist, Vortex Optics, Ozonics, Wasp, and lone wolf tree stands man please go out and support those companies because not only do they make kick-ass products but they're companies who participate in the hunting community and uh, that's something that uh i really admire about them so um go and support them they support me and then i get get to continue to make this kick-ass content for you guys uh other than that man please subscribe to the nine finger chronicles podcast please subscribe to the sportsman's nation rss feeds and podcasts there and uh man the season's not over a lot of rut left so i say that with there being like a, a week left right there's still running activity that goes all the way up until thanksgiving man so there is uh, quite a lot of time uh, depending on where you're at uh, to go out and get the job done so good luck be safe and we'll talk to you next time